to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chung. Hey y'all, I hope everyone's doing well. I don't have too much news these days, although I do have a whole bunch of really interesting interviews that I'll be conducting throughout this summer. Although, given the slow release date of this podcast, you'll probably hear them a few months down the line. Uh, Sometimes I wonder if I should release my podcast weekly instead of bi-weekly. I'm not sure I can do that much work as I'm finding even releasing them bi-weekly to be somewhat difficult. Sometimes I wish I just had a co-host to help spread out the work. But anyway, for today, I'll be interviewing the wonderful Christiane Dolores. Christiane's a multidisciplinary artist, writer, and musician. And a lot of her practice is driven by pursuing questions about our shared humanity as well as her personal history as a first-generation mixed-race American. Christiane also helps out local Pittsburgh artists through her work as an artist relations coordinator at the Greater Pittsburgh Arts Council. And lastly, Christiane is a member of the Non-White Collective, a group of bi-multiracial women artists who investigate what identity is with and without the context of white, and not just in skin color, but as a system of oppression. I reached out to Christiane after hearing about her involvement in the group, and I wanted to learn more about it and how the whole group and collective came about. We also meander through her early life experiences and the many detours she takes that eventually led to her forming her collective and her role and work as an artist and musician. The release of this interview also coincides somewhat with Christiane's third solo album, which is called The Pantry of Salt and Sugar. This album is a selection of 15 songs called from a two-year 500 microsong project. So the album release party, which will happen on July 27th, will be a live performance on a water limousine floating down Pittsburgh's Three Rivers. So if you happen to be in Pittsburgh and want to go, I'll link more information in the show notes. So stay cool this summer and enjoy our conversation. But they pick directly up. pick up the voice. Yeah, yeah, and then that makes it much easier, even if there is other things to um, silence them. Yeah. Yes. All right, cool. Um, so I'm right now here with Christiana Dolores. Hello. How are you doing? I'm I'm doing better. Better? <laughs> yeah, I'm good. I am great. Yeah. You're on a two-week staycation, staycation yeah. rejuvenation, art residency. Yeah, but I, I, you know, I can get very intense about everything I need to do and not actually rest. Yeah. So I, you know, it's it's a balance. And yeah. I think my, the first day of the staycation, all kind of things were just ridiculously wrong. What do you mean? Well, like people were parking in my driveway and breaking down, like what just do you like mean? stupid things, like the kind of stupid things, like if you're trying to open up a jar. Yeah. And it won't open. And yeah. then when you finally get it to open, it spills everywhere. Yeah. It was that kind of day. Oh. Uh, yeah. Sorry to hear that. But I turned it around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you want to start off with a bit about yourself, where you grew up, your art. They're, they're, those are vast subjects, but I'm letting you sort of. Well, I'll segue from, you know, t- like pretending I'm on an artist residency to segue into 
how I grew up, yeah, which was kind of like an artist residency. Oh, yeah. Um, both my parents are creatives. Um, my dad made leather purses. My mom sewed. He played jazz music. He made games. Games? Like board games? Like board games. Oh, okay. She was, a, um, she's really great at illustration. And so we lived on a corner in Bell Suver. And it was kind of like. Bell Where's that? That's on the South Hilltop. Okay. So it's at the top of 18th Street. Okay. South side, but not quite. The, it's kind of like its own thing up okay. there. Not like the flats at all. And um, it was kind of like this intersection. Everyone who was creative in that, and there were so many creative people in that neighborhood. They all kind of came to our house. Yeah. Would play music, listen to music. Yeah. So I grew up around a lot of creative people. My, you know, they, they just kind of came to our house and. And I grew up thinking of music and poetry and drawing and painting as kind of interchangeable. interchangeable because yeah. that's what I and sewing and it's all kind of interchangeable for me because that's what my parents are doing and the, the business aspect of it. They were selling things, so I think I'm unusual, an yeah. unusual artist in the sense that I don't have a problem with money. I don't believe. I mean, even as I was studying here at Carnegie Mellon <coughs> University, this this um, the perpetuation of this myth that you need to be damn near starving to make great art is just, mm. I don't believe in that. <laughs> I don't believe in that. Well, once you're in the university, you also realize it's not true. Yeah. And you, can't most... per- you can't perpetuate this kind of ideology when you're here at the university. It's not true. Yeah. When most people have the means to come here. Yeah. The means to like really create. Yeah. 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 I mean, not, not to discount people who, you know, who don't have the means and still made it, but like, that that was me, you know, (laughs) but you look at a lot of those schools, both undergrad and grad, and you just look at the students and you get a very good sense of how it is also very important to have those means. Yeah. And you get a good sense of how the art world works. You know, it works on connections, and some of these connections are through people's parents. And it works, you know, money begets money. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're lucky to even kind of make it yeah. in some ways if you don't come from a certain kind of background. Right. Or having the financial cushion yeah. to do certain to, to things. To do certain things. Not uh, having to deal with loans. Yeah. Um, especially, and then, like, in, in terms of, like, administrative, like, taking on non-paid intern jobs in New York City or LA. Yeah. You which, can't do that if you don't have the means. Yeah. It sounds great. Yeah. But you can't really I mean I worked while I went to school. So that was just kind of out of the question. Yeah. I didn't finish here because of the I just couldn't take the uh, community of privilege. Hmm. So when did you leave? I left twice. Because <laughs> I thought, well, I'm, you know, I came the first time and I stayed a semester and I just, I remember walking from Bloomfield with paintings. I'm carrying them. I had, you know, I'm bouncing, walking. I have bruises on my hips. I finally get to class. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm an over listener, you know, over hearer. That's how I kind of write some of my things. I listen to people. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hearing some fellow students and she's like, oh, my dad's buying me a car. I was like, I wish my dad buy me a car. I'm just talking to my head. She's like, I'm so tired of walking. And I'm in my head like, yeah, me too. I just walked all the way here. And she's like, yeah, I mean, it's so exhausting walking from Margaret Morrison. 
And at that at that time, I had a tray of pastels. And you're living in Bloomfield. Yeah. yeah, I took them and I threw them up in the air, and it hit everybody in the head. And I'm like, I'm fucking out of here. I'm just out of this here. This is your first semester. <laughs> it was just like I I'm out of here. Uh-huh. I ugh. Yeah. I cannot. No. Yeah. No. I cannot be the only one. Yes. Yeah. But then I went to study in Switzerland. All this kind of stuff. And I said, Oh, let me try it again. How'd you go to Switzerland? Um, my, a good friend of my mother's taught at this teacher school and invited one of her children and I took advantage of it. I was there for about, it felt like a year, mm. but it was only six months. It was, it was, it was teach as a school. Yeah. Later, I later seminar in Schmitz, Switzerland, mm. um, up in the mountains. It was great. It's very idyllic. Yeah. It was about a half hour from Luzern. Mm-hmm. Not, yeah. Very close to, uh, Zurich. Yeah. So then I, that's why I came back and I said, ah, I'm different. <laughs> but this place wasn't different. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this and I'm not definitely not paying for it. Yeah. So I just, when I, after I made that decision, I decided to just learn it all by myself and just be that artist. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do it. I'm, well, what would I do in school? I would research. I would paint all the time. So that's what I did. Yeah. And kind of, and that's how I kind of led into arts administration. Because it's similar work. You have to really dig to find, I mean, it's so much easier now because of the way people share things via technology. Yeah. Then it was um, magazines, finding the opportunities in the back of magazines. Then, you know, then it was email. Once you know the but now it's just everything. You can yeah. find it through Twitter, Facebook. In fact, people don't even maintain websites anymore. So They don't? Yeah, a lot of times opportunities, if they do have a website, it just points to the social media. Mm-hmm. And the social media mm-hmm. will tell you about the art opportunity. Which is kind of one of the only reasons, one of the few reasons I'm still on Facebook. I really don't like being there. But for the sake of my job, that's where I find the opportunities. Right. But yeah, I was like constantly seeking out opportunities, taking what I learned as a child as far as business and applying that to the work that I did and selling it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for a while, um, made t shirts, hand painted t shirts, sold them on the corner of Pitt, was making a living that way. And then at some point, you came back to CMU to try again? Yeah. And <laughs> and How long did you last that time? One semester. So you did one year, basically. <laughs> one year. One year, two different times. Yeah. And then did you complete your degree somewhere else or? No, that's why I'm saying like I didn't mm. complete it. I just decided to do the the work because I really I don't want to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. I just want I want to be an artist. Um, so I'm just gonna do do the work. And the work is research, studying, painting, drawing. So and then um it was kind of connected to an arts community through like the brew house and everything. So there's that kind of connection with other artists, which is very similar to like kind of having a critique session here. Yeah. You know, so I kind of built my own university for me. Right. It was more customized. Right. And your parents, what what were they, they supported you the entire time? Well, at that time my parents had split. So my mom completely supportive of me. I mean, I think coming from a European country, there's like a real dedication to the arts. They're not both seen as a parents? luxury. Both your parents? No, my father is from Pittsburgh. Uh-huh. 
My mother's from Germany. So I think the viewpoint of art is seen very differently. It's seen as work. Mm-hmm. Here it's kind of given this luxury kind of, um, yeah. Yeah. You yeah. And it's I mean? interesting because um, uh, many years ago through uh, the Greater Pittsburgh Arts Council had, we do um, an annual meeting and yeah. Bob Lynch, the main dude at Americans for the Arts, he did a presentation on American art, and he uh, he had a theory that the value of it here is that it's not practical. Like when you think of what people have had to do coming here and settling, and mm-hmm. it's it just what it didn't quite have the same value. It wasn't practical. So I, I thought that was really interesting. I think it's a culture like coming to America. It wasn't practical. Well, just the way this country came to be, that people were taking over land, chopping down trees, making log cabins, the whole thing of settling uh, a space that was pristine and just art was quite, I think crafts were probably really, really big, you know, like building and that kind of thing, but it just wasn't really part of it. But I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, I also think that's power, right? That it's not practical. Art's not practical. Because you can kind of talk about anything and do anything you want. There aren't any rules. Creativity is not bound. Yeah. And like how we're talking about with this this building that we're in, architecturally, it's bound by the functionality of people walking around and being able to find places. Yes. Right? But if <laughs> yeah. architecture is unbound, it would have to be a space, it potentially is a space that is not accessible to human beings, which then it ceases maybe to be a building. I'm not sure. Right. Yeah. Maybe at that point it becomes public art. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, this kind of led me to um, accidentally become arts administrator in many ways. How? Did, yeah. How did you get into that? You're right now the artist relations coordinator, right? Of yeah. But before then, I had, um, you know, doing all this, you know, treating my life like a university. I came back to Pittsburgh. I had worked on a farm for about two years. I was the baker, so I made all the cookies and cakes for Tribeca and Sing Sing Prison, the mar- you know, the farmer's markets for Sing Sing Prison, Tribeca, and Park Place. Hmm. Yeah. So after that stint, came back and, no, actually, I didn't start Sun Crumbs until I got back from the desert. The desert? Okay. So after the farm, a bunch of us went to the desert. From the farm. Yeah. We went to, I had all these kind of dreams. I'm like, I, we really got to go to the Southwest. And I've really been studying Hopi culture. And I'm like, I got to, I'm having these dreams. I got to go to the Southwest. So a bunch of us drove. I have amazing friends who go like, okay, let's, you have a dream. Let's pack up the car. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, my husband at the time. Yeah. So we uh, left and did that. And then we came back to Pittsburgh. They stayed in San Jose, uh, Santa Fe for a while. And I came back with like, I'm going to do five. I'm going to do five things. I'm going to do music. I'm going to do poetry. I'm just going to do my work. For the five, poetry, music, art. Yeah, uh, business. Yeah, I was just going to really focus on my work. Mm-hmm. And so I became a member of Women of Visions, which is a very longstanding um, arts group of African-American women who are visual artists. And then I wanted to kind of, you know, speaking about my childhood earlier, I wanted to do a piece that kind of spoke to that. And part of uh, what I learned from my father, more specifically, 
is improvising and improvising stories, improvising music, text, that kind of thing. So I, um, I talked to Rick Schweikert. He's a, a person, a de- I don't want to call him a developer, but he owned a building downtown. Mm-hmm. I think it's now the housing for the Art Institute. Okay. Which, which recently went under, right? Yeah. Um, at that time, it was full of artists. So artists were living in these spaces and he had a bottom space. So I went there and I asked him if I could put on this production and I made up a name and then I made up like a mission statement and I lied and I said I had a nonprofit. What was your name? Sun Crumbs. Santa Crumbs. No, Sun. Sun Crumbs. Yeah, as a uh, Sun okay. Crumbs because, right. you know, we're all like scouring the ground for crumbs, right. but we're all people of the sun. Right. So he said, yeah. So the, it was called the painted brush. And I just reached out to all these different artists that I knew and had like a full band, six or seven poets, and then people, painters, six or seven painters. Mm-hmm. And everyone improvised. So mm-hmm. the music, everyone was responding to either the music or the painting and would create a piece, and then the next person would go up. And it was well attended. Everyone got so excited about it. They were like, hey, let's make it a nonprofit. And the main person was um, fellow artist and really good friend, Christina Springer. And so with her assistance, because her mom is like basically the queen of nonprofits. Mm. She's one of the first African-American women to run the Westinghouse Foundation. Hmm. So she knew a lot about how business runs. Yeah, I mean, we're grants. Like yeah. You know, I knew nothing about nonprofit arts. I just knew about creating events and creating happenings. and um, Right, but how to create a foundation and yeah. funding over the course yeah. of a number of years. So we were a team and we, uh, we co-ran the Pittsburgh Poetry Slam team. When, when was this? What's the timeline you're looking this at? This was a timeline of the mid-90s. Okay. Kind of like a lot of a lot of us will talk about that time with like we'll be enamored. We're not reminiscing, but it was like a, that time period was really amazing for arts in, in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Yeah, yeah, so many bands, so, just so much going on. Um, Bridge Spotters, there's just so much amazing things happening. We were just one of those things. So we created programming. So we would have a monthly. Uh, Poetry reading when she was very well connected uh, through the Poetry Slam community and would bring in national poets. They would do a performance. We'd pair them with a local poet. Those national poets would go into the schools and work with students. Our Poetry Slam team, we co-coached it. So the team was at the bottom, like 77. We brought it up to 11. Hmm. We were taking a team to, I mean, it was the only foundation funded poetry team. In the nation. Yeah. Because we didn't want them to have to sell things. We wanted them to be solely focused on, I mean, solely focused on doing their craft. And that's why they went, we went from 78 to Mm. 11. Right. That's that's what happens. Giving them the time. Yeah. That's what happens when you give an artist time and they don't have to struggle is that they will excel. So that's, we were really, like, really excited about that. Um, we also did another program called Bust a Myth. This is something I'm really passionate about, like just discovering what's underneath all of these stereotypes. How did they come to be? 
So what is Bust the Myth? We would do programming. So the first one was, will the real McCoy stand up? So that was about Native American culture and brought in some friends who talk about, there are Native people still in Pittsburgh Mm -hmm. um, to talk about their culture. They did a performance. They brought fry bread. It was kind of just really digging deep and hearing from a person who's in this culture what their culture is like Mm -hmm. and not being told what it's like. No dogs, no blacks, no Irish. That was the signs that they had hanging up. And it was always fascinated me that the Irish were beneath blacks. (laughs) And I thought like, what? No dogs? How times have changed. You know, (laughs) I was like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so uh, Christina's father at that actually participated because he's a lawyer. So he dug up a lot of legal files on it. And then um, a friend of ours, John Ogden, sang a lot of Irish songs talking about that, that time period and how, you know, talking about slave ships and coffin ships and how the Irish were stolen and just kind of parallels between the two cultures. Right. Um, yeah, the next one we did, um, I did with um, my friend, her last name's Lee blanking on her first name we collaborated and she at the time she was teaching at Pitt so we did like a week-long presentation it was called Nation, and it was talking about Asian identity mm. and what it is to be in America first or second generation immigrant and so we had like a full-on um, fair so different people were showing you anything from origami to flower, like design, like the different kind of crafts from different cultures. Um, we had performances. So um, I forget his name, but um, he was Filipino, but he, he was mixing the traditional Filipino dance with the sticks with hip hop. Hmm. Um, this is a while ago. I wish I had brought the program because everything's in there. Yeah. Uh, oh, Lin Wei Lee. Yeah. That's her name. We collaborated on this and, um, is she still teaching at Pitt? No, she had the she she moved. I think she's in New York, Rochester, New York. Hmm. Um, we had different panel discussions um, about what it is, and that was that was the last one we did, and that was like really big. It was like a week long. Um, it's hard to fill up a week of events. Yeah, but it was it was really I was really proud of that one. Oh, yeah. um, we did lots of exhibitions, so they were group shows, and they. You know, throughout this whole process, we were training the artists that we worked with how to put their portfolio together, whether it was visual or music, how to write an artist statement, how to do a bio, how to present yourself, and most importantly, how to get paid. Mm. I think even... I still don't know how to do that. Oh, we'll we'll, we'll have a conversation. (laughs) I know how to write grants, but... (laughs) Yeah, we came up with a system on how to get paid as a poet. Uh Uh-huh. We came up with a system of how to figure out how to uh, price your artwork. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I heard from people at that time, like they were a little upset because artists were coming to them asking for pay and coming up with a a full proposal. And they it's like, no, artists don't. Yeah, we were transforming the culture in a Mm -hmm. sense because artists were like, no, this is a this is a job. Yeah, this is work. It has value. We do not go to our dentist and our mechanic saying, hey, so 
this is your gift from God. Can you just like, can you do me, can you do it for free? I'll give you lots of exposure. Mm-hmm. I'll get on Facebook and tell everybody what a great dentist you are. Yeah. So, yeah, we work to transform that. So we're really excited about that part of it. Yeah. So that's that kind of work. Right. Coming up with a sort of hourly rate and calculating how long something in particular yeah. takes. Yeah. And just really, I mean, I learned that from my parents. Yeah. My mom's phenomenal. Yeah. I'll show her my work and I'm like, I'm thinking this price. Yeah. She's like, ah. And she yeah. just adds maybe another 200 on it. Yeah. And then I will add an extra 100. I call it the asshole tax. Yeah. Yeah. It's like people wasting your time and being. So. No, I have no problem with that. Yeah. I, I mean, I tell artists to do that. I think an undergrad recently asked me that question. I'm, when I say I still haven't figured it out, it's like, cause I make videos. Right. And so I have a more difficult time calculating like, what is the time I spent on these videos? How many, how many additions and also like what form the video takes as an object, you know? So that starts getting a little more difficult in terms of, you know, that thinking about it, mm. you know, it's like giving somebody a movie. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that's video yeah. arts, uh, perennial, issue right like they sort of act as movies like you go go out on site uh and then you do a lot of time editing and and in terms of that it gets more difficult in terms of how to price it yeah and and, Um, and, and usage and usage too yeah because people if you give them the video they can use it all kind of multiple ways right do they have permission to use it that way do they actually own it yeah yeah. As opposed to having the rights to it. Yeah, right. it can get quite So, I mean, like, if I start making objects, I don't have a problem. But I haven't really been making objects. So, that's what I more meant. Like, I haven't figured that out yet. And I think a lot of video artists still haven't either. You know? Yeah, that's a fun challenge. That would be fun. You know? I think there's something similar with photography. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the way photographers price out their work and how you're going to use it. You know, there's lots of... If you just... Putting it on your website, that's one price. If you're going to use it for social media, that's a whole other price. Yeah. yeah, it's really and, interesting. And, and that's the, changed. And the addition, too, of that. Yeah. And then yeah. with Instagram, that's changed everything. Now, everyone's a photographer, you know? No, they're not. <laughs> I'm here to say everyone is creative, but not everyone's an artist. I know the world likes to per, per, you know, perpetuate that. That's It's not true. Being an artist is a whole... It's It's... A whole nother dedication, a whole nother de- dedication than just kind of. I like to think randomly. that, but I've also met so many bad artists who are making art and are making money. So like, and sometimes when I look at it, I'm like, objectively, it's hard for me to say like, it's hard to like make those judgment calls on people who I, whose work aesthetically I don't respect, you know what I mean? Or who I think that aren't working very hard or whatever projection that I have, I think is a similar Sometimes I'm cautious about saying, like, not everyone can be an artist because who am I to know, you know? I think you know. I'm just I, <laughs> no, I know, I mean, but I, I've, I I've met like... so many bad artists who, who um, it seems, seems to also be able to fall through the cracks, you know what I mean? There are bad artists, no yeah. doubt, that's still different than... Than being an artist, you think? That's still... Uh, being an artist is a thing. You can be a good one or you can be a bad one. Mm-hmm. Everybody's creative. But the dedication, even if you're lazy, the kind of life it takes to be, you decide on this rough and tumble, rocky road of making art, never knowing, feast or famine, never knowing, mm-hmm. will I make it this time? Will I get the grant? Will I sell this thing? 
It's it's a it's a slightly of, crazy horrible way to live. You're describing it as a state of mind, <laughs> basically, right? Yeah, yeah, it's um you are dedicated. I'm. I feel like it's in my blood, and I if I don't make it, if I don't make some form of art, I will probably go crazy. Hmm. I'm not sure if people who work in construction feel that way. I'm not sure if like a plumber feels like, man, if I don't get, if I don't get to do that, I'm going to go nuts. Mm. It's, a, it's a different kind of feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can be good and bad at it, but it's still for me. Yeah. A totally different dedication, a totally different type of life. I mean, just look at musicians and dancers, dancers, dancing eight hours a day. Kills your body. Yes, you are killing your body. Even when you're painting, you're killing your body. Sometimes you have to use a particular paint. Not good for you. You need this particular red. You probably shouldn't use this red. That that beautiful cadmium. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's just, yeah. But, hmm. Lots of jobs kind of kill your body, over, you know, over time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Being Absolutely. a minor will definitely, yeah. Lots of jobs will kind of kill your body, but yeah. I mean, I think most jobs kill your body either physically or mentally or both. Yes. You know? Yeah. Can't really avoid that. But I think um, there's something regenerative with art. We're killing ourselves, but we regenerate ourselves. Yeah. I don't always feel that way with like other jobs and I've had over 80 80 jobs you, yes. count, you counted <laughs> Eight, I don't yeah think, I don't I've been think, counting I don't think I've ever counted I'm oh I've counted everything from yeah. being a clown at a child's party to uh, passing out flyers with a person in a gorilla suit yeah 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 <laughs> yeah I used to sell pantyhose okay. I've done just about every kind yeah. of job I was furniture finisher I'm sorry oh my god that's not me. That is my dog. My dog is farting like crazy. It's fine. Don't worry. <laughs> Hello, audience. It's really terribly smelling right here. My dog is just right by my feet. He's, and he's, he's farting quiet. like he's crazy. He's quiet, which is great. <laughs> um, so I guess, yeah, so then how did you end up getting into um, artist administrator, though? So we kind of went off a random tangent. Uh, well, I think beginning with some crumbs mm, and then right. at some point... We didn't get the funding mm. to continue it. And if you, like, the, uh, the Greater Pittsburgh Arts Council just released a report on racial equity in the arts. So the story's right in there. Like, it's just uh, the lack of support for financial support for organizations that are run by people of color. Mm-hmm. Just It continues today. So at that point in time, I decided, like, I, I think we should end this because I'm not... I mean, we were killing, we were doing 60 programs a year. And if they didn't think it was a value to make sure that we were going to get paid, like we would pay ourselves. And that, like I said before, that's not going to work for me. Like you don't get all this programming and don't get to pay the people who actually do it. Um, So we pulled the plug on that. And then Rob Long, who was... uh, at the brew house, because the brew house at the time was full of artists and had a theater and a um, gallery space. He approached me about taking over and running that. Hmm. So I ran the exhibition space 
And then when they finally finished the renovations on the performance space, I took care of both those spaces. So it was like a whole, now it was like I was actually working in an office. Right. So that was a whole nother level of arts administration mm-hmm. that I had to do. Yeah. Yeah. And then kind of went on a hiatus, did some other kind of jobs. Saw the um, job at the Arts Council, applied for it, was the executive assistant for five, six years, but always very much focused on individual artists and making sure, like, at that time we were uh, focused on arts nonprofits, small to mid to large nonprofits. We are a member organization. We had a ticketing service, that kind of thing. But we also had individual artist members, but didn't really have many programs that focused on them or took care of them besides volunteer lawyers for the arts. So the Fine Family Foundation provided the initial support to create my position. And so I think it's going on six years I've been in this position, hmm. which is kind of just a further extension of what I've been doing right. since I left college. Yeah. Just making sure that all artists have access, because I feel that it's important um, having been at different institutions, it's very clear to me that keeping access from certain people gives a certain thing a kind of cachet. And I don't, I don't quite agree with that. So what are some of the ways that you allow or promote better accessibility to artists? Uh, one, it's right now we are, la- well, it's been launched, but the Pittsburgh Artists Resource website. This is kind of like an extension of what I've been doing. Like I, I would find resources and then share them with my mm. f- friends and say, may the best person get the grant. Right. Right. All this kind of information will be on this website. Uh, vendors will be on this website. Uh, if you're new to Pittsburgh or returning to Pittsburgh or even a student, it's hard to find the right businesses that will help you construct, fabricate, repair Whatever it is that you need. It takes a while, usually. Yeah, it takes a while to make those kind of connections, but it'll be there. Also, classifieds, a classified section. So, hey, I need someone to help me stretch canvas. Hey, I have five yards of leftover canvas. Anyone want it? So that'll be there. So there's access to people. Right. In a sense, creating a sort of community. Yeah. And because people are so much as being done on the phone, you can access it. It's, you know, compatible with the Mm -hmm. phone. So you can access this information. And that's always been really, really very important to me that everyone have access to information that in some ways is like a cornerstone of equity. If you have access to it, then it's really you can begin to take that information and that knowledge and start to create what you want. Mm -hmm. There still are barriers, but as long as you have the first step of having access, I think is the important first step. Being available online, which now is much more easy to have access to. You can go to a public library, you can have the phone. Yeah. I go to the Squirrel Hill library a lot. Yeah. The library was really big for me. Yeah. Yeah. Friday nights, I would be in the library. Such a nerd. Reading art books. I love the library. <laughs> I love reading art books. Uh, the other thing is the emergency fund for artists. Mm-hmm. A lot of us do fundraisers for our friends, our fellow artists in need, and the uh, Hillman Foundation has supported this, uh, jump-started this program to help artists. It's not going to be a lot of money, but it's going to be something like if you, know, you experience a catastrophic event that's going to greatly impact your ability to continue making work. All these different things Mm -hmm. that we do, uh, workshops to make sure that people understand how to 
move their work forward in a business manner, copyright workshops, intellectual property workshops. Mm-hmm. Creativity is the thing in the 21st century. So it's really important for people to understand how to protect their creativity. What does that mean? It's all about media now. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there've been instances where people have had their work. You put, you know, you put your photographs up, someone takes the photograph and puts it on their website and is selling the work, hmm. those kinds of things. And mm-hmm. so you really have to be, you can't be aware of everything, but it's important to make sure that your work is protected. Mm-hmm. It's a difference in a different kind of lawsuit, like yeah. small claims or, you know, giant violations, like $2,500 or $25,000 mm-hmm. if someone is violating your copyright. Yeah, all this kind of business volunteers for the arts, which will provide marketing and business plans, promotional plans for artists that was typically just for arts nonprofits, which is great. You have to have a plan, you know, some sort of roadmap. And then I do uh, technical assistance. So I meet artists one-on-one and it's kind of like a diagnosis. Like where do you know? Okay. Where are you at? Yeah. Where do you want to be? I also look at it kind of like, being a rocket. A rocket? Yeah. So I help you lift off mm. and then I'm the fuselage. I just go boop and then I'm gone. And yeah. You can, go, you can go to whatever planet you want to go to. Yeah. But I help you launch yourself. What was the most interesting ones that you've done? Oh my God. I bet, I bet like something like, I'm just trying to imagine. I meet with that, so many artists and like, I just yeah. help them lift up. Yeah. Um, I don't, oh my God. I don't. Well, my favorite ones, and they call me the fairy art godmother, would be D.S. Kenzo and Anne Quinique. Mm. Just providing the tools, exploding. Um, Just helping people navigate and find their way. I basically unlock what's already in there. Like as I was saying before, our culture doesn't quite respect what we do. People will come in very downtrodden, very like, I can't see my way forward. People don't respect what I'm doing. I don't know how to ask for the money. All this, all this kind of stuff. Because you can go to college and get an art degree and still not know how to sell your work. Mm-hmm. Well, they, I don't think any colleges teach that. No, they don't. Mm-hmm. And so this is, that's what, uh, I remember coming here at CMU and I asked for a business class and I was told no. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, another reason why I went off on my own. It's like, I, it's pointless to me to just be in the studio and not know how to sell the work. What, then what am I doing? I'm training myself to be a professor. I don't want to be a professor. Mm-hmm. So I think what we do at the Arts Council and what I, you know, the kind of things that happen through uh, my area fill that niche. Right. Because you learn how to be a great artist and learn techniques and all that kind of stuff, but you still don't, you don't know how to market yourself. You don't know how to brand yourself. You don't know how to talk about yourself. So I, I am we, we do that. That's awesome. Yeah, I help people with their artist statements. Yeah. Of course, mine sucks. <laughs> what do they say? The cobbler's children have no shoes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. my or, bio. Ugh. Or you always hear that chefs oftentimes cook the most simplest thing for themselves after they're done. Because yeah. they're like, you know, we're, we've been doing this all the time. So Yeah, that's the price I'm paying for <laughs> doing this kind of work. Right. Yeah, right. I'm like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so then from there, the other things I noticed you had up... I, I saw you had a YouTube television channel, Art Happens TV, 
She did yes. with Jen Saffron, and then you also have the Non-White Collective. Um, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about both of those. Hashtag the Not White Collective. Began. Oh, yeah, I always keep saying non. Yeah, yeah it's not non. <laughs> uh, began as an invite to 10 women in the arts, 10 culture producers, 10 teachers, 10 art makers, 10 fierce women, 10 curators, women I've either worked with directly or indirectly. I have been having a conversation in my head about culture, about uh, where does a person such as myself fit in? And I guess even now they're calling um, the next generation, what are they calling them? Third world kids or something like that. Third culture kids. Kids who are what? How, how are they how are they being grouped? Their parents are of two different cultures. Uh-huh. They grow up in one area, live in another area. So they're just of, hmm. they're of three cultures. Okay. I'm trying to navigate that. So um just trying to figure out like where do I fit in this? And I wanted to have a conversation with other similar people who are immigrants or descendants of immigrants who are people of color who are biracial, multiracial, mm-hmm. because I've traveled across the country many, many times. And I think there is a misconception that when we're in urban areas, that it truly reflects the whole of America. Mm-hmm. It does not. It's a pocket. Um, this country is very binary, good, bad, Republican, Democrat, male, female, Black, white. It's got, for me, it has a uh, seems to have a sincere problem with gray areas. Mm-hmm. Well, people have yeah. problems with gray areas. Yeah, yeah. So I invited invited these ten women um, to have this conversation. Uh, they are hopefully I remember all the names: <laughs> Fran Flaherty, Maritza Mosquera. Sarah Aziz, Veronica Corpaz, Leanna Manise, Amber Epps, Christina Springer, Henya, I feel like I'm forgetting, and Maggie Negretti. And so for the past, I think we're going on three years, for two years we met almost monthly to talk about ourselves. And like you, the, you started it, right? Yeah, just jump-started it. And to talk about ourselves, it just began as a conversation. Who are we? Uh, Henya and I did a performance together. I was reciting poetry and she was uh, playing conga drums. And a photographer came up to us and and it was a a black poetry reading. I was invited by the Kelly Strayhorn. And he said to she and I, wow, this is, you guys were great, but what are you two white ladies doing here? Hmm. And we're like... We looked at each other and I think she cursed at him in Spanish and I cursed at him. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what are, we're not white. So, the, the, you know, this kind of idea began very long for me because I'm just like, you don't get to define me because it makes you more comfortable to think mm-hmm. that I'm aligned with you. First off, I don't comprehend the need for whiteness. I feel like everybody comes from somewhere. And so when you don't, when you just adopt this kind of bucket, this like silo of whiteness, I feel like you 
don't honor your ancestors. That's just where I'm coming from with that. And also when you say that, I feel like you are aligning yourself with the power structure and the power structure of white supremacy, um, white privilege, white, white, all that. I mean, I think the word privilege needs to be renamed. I'm tweaking that. I'm not sure it quite captures what we're trying to say with that, right. but for the sake of what, you know, people understanding where I'm coming from. Yeah. This concept is everything that's not white is in opposition mm-hmm. in order to maintain whiteness. And so um, we, we kind of just talked about that and then we just kind of grew into a group and we decided to keep the name. Kind of went back and forth and I just, I thought the name was kind of like a Cohen. Oh, a what? A Cohen, kind of like a, a riddle. Oh, okay. In a sense, because... Well, one, if you're offended by it, that just says that opens that says up everything. That says everything, but it also opens up a door for a conversation. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say non, and it, it's talking about us. It's not talking about you. Mm-hmm. So if you're taking offense to it, no one's talking about you. We're defining ourselves, and we're saying we're not white. You don't get to define us. Mm. Even um, there was a, uh, a staff person who would write grants and would just decide who I was. I told her I was multiracial. So when you need to put down the ethnicity of the staff, I, this is what I, she kept constantly putting down. She wouldn't put it down. And I'm could, like, you could, don't. She we, wouldn't put what down? Uh, multiracial. Oh, okay. We got into it. I was like, you don't get to define me. What, what are you doing? I've told you three years now and you keep deciding who you think I am. You don't get to do that. No, I, I, no, you don't get to do that. So I'm very, yeah. And also another reason I just felt like I'm seeing more and more children like myself. And I'm like, how are they navigating this? Or maybe it's easier to see them because of the internet. Yeah. And also I want them to see us. Mm-hmm. We're not really out here. How many exhibits do you see of work done by an Iranian artist, a Mexican artist, a Chinese artist, a Chinese American artist? Where, where are the shows? They're on university campuses. But outside that, where are we? Where are we? When it comes to music, where are we? Run River North was like the first, yeah, I was like, fine, yeah, God damn it, finally, right? But we're, we're not really seen. We're, so, we're kind of invisible. And um, Maritza just she has, has such a great way, way of words. We're the global majority as she puts it. But she said, uh, in response to the creation of this group, she said, Christiana, you're asking us to step forward. And I said, yeah, I think we, we have to step forward. We can't let people define who we are for the sake of not ruffling or, you know, not like rocking the boat. We need younger people to know that we're, we've been here and we've been doing stuff. We need to put on shows so you can see us. Like we did um, in between the middle recently at the brew house. And each of us, it was a broad curation. Each of us invited people. We didn't see the work beforehand. Only a few people sent pictures of the work, but on the whole, we didn't see the work coming. It just uh, anyone could apply. Yeah. So there was the, we knew the work that we were going to put in the show. Mm-hmm. But, um, it wasn't so much anyone could apply. They were invited. Mm. 
by one of the members. And it was just phenomenal how the show came together. Not having seen the work in all the different people and cultures that were there. Um, And the energy in the room was incredible. And so many people, this is how I, yeah, you do something you don't quite know. We know it makes ourselves feel good. But so many people, everybody, um, European, East Asian, I mean, just whoever was there just said, I feel at home. I feel really at home. I feel really comfortable. In fact, I didn't realize I was feeling uncomfortable until I realized how comfortable I feel here. Right. 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 I, you, you normalize that uncomfortableness of being an outsider. Yeah. And so it's providing this space. Um, and I, I love the fact that we, it's become something bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very clear that I'm not the leader. There are 10, we're now 14. Each of these women are leaders. They're incredible. There doesn't need to be a leader. We're all leaders. And we work really well together. So we have different areas of talent. So whatever is needed, we, a person steps up and handles it. And it just flows. Because mm. I think it's important. And like, people are intelligent. People, you don't, there's not really much need to micromanage. I mean, from yeah. my point of view, even... With my work at the Arts Council, I'm not, I have a few people that I work with, but I'm not interested in micromanaging. Right. I can go in and shift it a little bit, but yeah. you're intelligent. If you have a question, you ask me. If it looks like you're going the wrong way, I'll come over and just nudge. Yeah. But I wouldn't ask you to be a part of something. I, yeah, there's a, a lovely level of trust. Right. So we've just been having these incredible discussions on... Um, beginning with imperialism, colonialism, the effect it's had on each of our cultures, what what it's like to be in America, what it means, um, our levels of privilege. You know, being able to attend CMU is a privilege. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Being um, educated on a level that perhaps um, some of your relatives that are in your homeland, right. don't have access to being able to speak in a certain way, being able to code switch, being code switch, yeah. you know, um, thinking of um, the great stain of this country, which is racism. You have the genocide, slavery. Both have yet to be fully recognized, to even be fully absolved. The other component to this is to be a part of that story, be a part of pushing this forward to for change, um, being a part of uniting with our brothers and sisters of the Black Lives Matter movement. Like we need our, we need all, we are the global majority, so we're gonna, we need to step up and be that global majority. Um, we need to assist each other when things are going on. Yeah. I think we need, we need to hear all voices Mm -hmm. at the table. All of them. Right. That's, I don't, that's what we're, we're focused on the humanity of that. Cause at the root of even the differences of our culture, like dance and food and everything, we're humans. 
So when we have these discussions, I find it interesting when we have these different equity meetings and discussions, there's two things that I feel like aren't talked about. Mm-hmm. The root of it, which is kind of like uh, imperialism and colonialism, and humanity. Like, when are we going to talk about how to humanely treat each other while celebrating who we are? Because I think when, you, when you, people hear humanity, they think it means destroying like your cultural differences so you can all be on the same page. I was like, no, we're all kind of in the same book, different chapters, different paragraphs. We're all humans in a broader sense. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's not a a great melting pot destruction here. (laughs) I've always meant that when I saw that as a kid, it terrified me. What? Yeah, you have a melting pot. Yeah, you learn it. I'm like, I don't like this. Yeah. I remember as a kid, I'm like, I'm not going in no damn pot. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought it was really terrible. It was terrible. Yeah. I mean, just the imagery of it. Just the thought melting pot. Yeah. Just the words. Now I'm curious to see how that, who came up with that. Yeah, I, I know. Uh, it's a drawing. Yeah, I looked it up you a while did? ago. Yeah, because it was part. It's part of our research. We looked it oh, up because okay. we were we had a discussion of it. What, yeah, one what, of the white meetings, and we're just like, was I think it was like the thirties, nineteen thirties, and there's like all these different drawings. Huh. Yeah, the Great American Melting Pot, <laughs> and then you can see all like one of the drawings. You see all the people in their co- their costumes of their culture. Yeah, yeah, tumbling into the pot. Yeah. What, to come out? Come out white. Come out white. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they won't say that, yeah. but that's what it's supposed to be. This this identity of whiteness, which is in opposition to everything that mm-hmm. isn't white. Yeah. Yeah. As a kid, I hated it. I didn't like it. Yeah. I got in trouble a lot, too. I didn't pledge allegiance. I haven't pledged allegiance since. Yeah. My parents, both my parents told me, like, our people aren't free. Don't pledge. Yeah. I got until everybody's free. I got in trouble. Well, not in trouble. I got reprimanded for uh, not standing or stopping to doing what I was doing during, especially after the 9-11 when a lot of schools were playing the um, Pledge of Allegiance. So I was in high school when that happened. And I think there was an official ruling. I heard that the principal said it was, you were not required to do so, but certain teachers took it upon themselves to, you know, who were yes. feeling especially patriotic to reprimand students who didn't, feel the need to you know in any sort of way um yeah yeah mm-hmm. i mean um you know just talking to my mom in regards to germany the patriotism is what it, what's it like there it's just not um celebrated i think after hitler there's just no way of like by the but, flag and all, all that stuff but like, the right is mm-hmm. sort of rising back from what i hear in germany I think there's like there's that one right uh, wing political group AF. Yeah, but they're rising everywhere. Yeah, they're in France, mm-hmm. Brexit, England. Mm-hmm. They're everywhere. Yeah, there's this terrible fear of the other, of the brown yeah. people crossing imaginary boundaries. Yeah, these are all made up. <laughs> they're made up. They're well, on I a think map. And I, they're made up. I really like to think that is their last gasp of air. You know, I do too. But you know, on the other hand, like it has to be acknowledged that some people want to change to happen now. It's not happening fast enough, you know. And but 
you know, I think there's a sort of realization that what you just said earlier, that everyone who is not white is the majority. And there's a realization that that is being accelerated by this current world system, globalization, immigration, the ease in which travel can occur from place to place, the also um, mixing of different people, right? Um, There are a lot of people like me. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I said this, I've said this a lot, so it seems redundant, but like, I think um, it was only a few years ago that the incoming kindergarten class was more than 50% not white, right? So um, if that, you know, and I think even if people don't know that statistic, if you just look around, you can sense that there's this, and I think a lot of this angers this like uh, sub, um, this fear of exactly what that represents, right? What does it mean when all of a sudden you are no longer in the majority, not only in power, but also in terms of population. And also in terms of storytelling. Mm -hmm. What happens when your stories aren't the main ones told anymore? They don't. What happens when your stories don't dominate all the films and all the book releases and all the numbers? What Mm -hmm. happens when actually other stories can be be heard? Yeah. And appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and this is where people who think they don't have a bias, the good liberals. Yeah people who think they're allies this is where they're this is their test because when it's not your story what do you do then yeah when people stop caring i mean like i don't really care about your stories they don't i've cared about them for so much of my life i don't care i don't want to hear your stories anymore i don't want to see your movies i don't want to i don't want to watch your rom-coms full of just full of white people perpetuating the culture of whiteness. I'm not interested in it. When the world is way different than what you're perpetuating in the films. It's kind of even like Alicia Wormsley, a friend of mine. There are black people in the future. We're in the future. Yeah. Yeah. All of, you know. So, yeah, I've been having a real reaction to the media of it. I, I, can't, I can't deal with it. Yeah. It's beyond a diet. I don't even, I don't want it. I don't want it in my brain anymore. I don't want it in my brain anymore. I don't, I don't want to watch, I love sci-fi, but I don't want to watch your sci-fi films where there's one white guy who's going to save yeah. everybody. I don't want it anymore. I don't want it. I don't want when they you get take ang- characters and you like. They get angry though when it's, it's, it's surprising and dumb and scary when they do that, when they get angry at people who are not white in sci-fi movies, right? Like all the anger at the Asian woman in the new Star Wars films and all oh, the all, all the silly oh, things God. like yes. like there, there are no Asians in the, in Star Wars and we're like what <laughs> so there's like a walking dog man person named Chewbacca that 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 somehow makes sense but you can't have like yes. a person of color in the past future of this whatever this timeline of yeah. Star Wars is right you know I I mean I love Blade Runner but I was. I, I didn't go to see the... The this, new one? Yeah, because I'm like, I don't see any brown people. Mm. And it's to the point, even at events, if I, I have a 360 degree rule, if you're inviting me to an event and I don't quite know you, if I don't see some kind of brown people 360 degrees, I'm, I don't want to be there. Mm. I don't feel safe. And by safe, meaning I don't know who you voted for. Mm. I don't know... If you're smiling in my face right. while you post 
anti-immigrant rhetoric while you post things um, talking about, oh, the Black Lives Matters protesters should be run over. I don't know who you are anymore. And this has greatly affected my ability to make work or even to perform because you're in the audience. I don't know who you are. I don't know who you are. Like social media has changed that, at least for me. Yeah. It's revealed things about people that <laughs> that's good to know, but very disappointing. Yeah. Very, very disappointing to go like But not wow. only that, but there's also just there's also just like, do they even see you as an equal? You know? Like even like I I my my favorite one of my I think one of the most important movies that come out recently is Get Out, right? Because it's criticizing not the overt racism that exists, but just like you can be an ally, but mm-hmm. you can represent everything that is white supremacy, you know, uh, making fun of all the people who say statements like I would have voted Obama for the third time. It's like you're an ally, but, but, but you know, who are your true friends? Who do you invite to your parties? You know, who, exactly. do, you, who do you decide to hang out with? Who, whose jokes do you accept to turn who's, out yeah. blind ear or, you know... Like, whose work do you like, right? Even if it's not uh, conscious, like, you know, all white artists. Yeah. You know, or like all the people that you list as influences are all really uh, part of the white canon, part of the promotion of the white supremacy. Yeah, like when an opportunity crosses your desk, who do you call? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's things like that. Um so, or when you see an artist of color, are they just a token to represent diversity, or are they a human being? Yeah, and you do know? you have to have them in your photograph? Yeah, to and show, and, like, and, show and, that your organization and frame and the it event and frame it that so in your office. Diverse. Like I'm so <laughs> over the, I'm so over these things. Yeah, I'm over these things. I don't want to be photographed at your event. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, no, no. I'm I'm saying no to so much of the stuff. I don't want it anymore. I want a friend of mine said, you know, you're impatient. You're impatient. I'm impatient because okay. I want this. I said, but I'm half a century. How long do you expect me to wait? Yeah. I have a niece. You, so you think my niece should go through the same stuff? You think my friend's children should go through the same horrible types of oppression because you think. Wanting change now is too fast. Mm. After hundreds of years, you think it's too fast? No, I don't agree with that. So people think I'm impatient. I don't. I don't. I don't care. I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. And because it's like, what are you like? What are you doing to change things? Like I heard about um, the recent protests. The the yeah, and for, and, uh, okay. Rose. That in itself is just continues to be insane, <laughs> crazy. You know, you almost start to feel like, what is it? Are you perpetuating a type of genocide through cops? Yeah. I, I mean, what, what, any. But I heard about you know the police came. You know, as it's the drama plays out, in that white, white allies stood in front of them and locked hands. Arms. Yeah, and I'm like, that's. Before that, they stayed on the sidelines. But when it came time for protection, they stood up front. And I'm like, that is what needs to be done. You can't continue to ask people of color to educate you, to try to free ourselves from something that your ancestors put us through. Yeah. It's a, it's a slap in the face. We're exhausted. I refuse. Mm-hmm. 
I'm reclaiming my time. Thank you, Maxine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to educate you. You have to be very, very good. But the resources that. are out there. Resources are out yeah. there. But I mean, the other thing is also, I think, I mean, there, I, you know, everyone who says, oh, you're expecting too much is sort of like, even when you're expecting that much, you still don't see anything happening, you know? Yeah. So like, so, so, you know, it's difficult, right? Yeah. I think I just, I was, um, I mean, I think I just saw two really interesting movies. I saw the new Spike Lee movie, Black Handsman, yeah. uh, which is interesting. And I saw Crazy Rich Asians, which like, you know, I think a lot the Asian community has been complaining a lot and it's taken, you know, about representation and it's taken, I think people say 25, 15 years, 25 years since Joy Luck Club. And there's also the namesake, which also happened. That was the other, the other like all Asian cast, but it's like three movies over 25 years. Yeah. You know, this is why I don't watch American stuff. I get on, I get on Netflix. I watch things in subtitles. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I watch Korean movies. Yeah. I watch Pakistani movies. I watch Indian. I, I just read subtitles. Yeah. I'm just, I'm not going to wait for Hollywood to wake yeah. up. It's nice if they put like, so when they're going to wait another 15 years. Scarlett Johansson's going to play another. Like, I know she was actually stepped down. Yeah, but, like, she was going to play a trans person, right? Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. But she already played an Asian yeah. person. Yeah. But that didn't turn out very but well. But everyone's like, oh, at that, you know, it's interesting the same people who complain about people of color and other sci-fi films have such great excuses. It's like, yeah. well, it's a cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> and you said, do that, you even hear yourself? That was also crazy. Be I mean, that also revealed also the 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 effects of colonialism and white supremacy because, you know, Japanese people were proud that a white person was playing a Japanese character. And then obviously all the white people jumped on like, see, Japanese people are okay with it. And it's like... Well, now Hollywood blames China. For what? Um, having so many white characters in the films because it's the Chinese market mm. is gigantic and they don't... This is this is the, what's playing. They're they're it's playing out in different yeah. blogs and everything. Hmm. They don't want to see. Yeah, although there was, I mean, it. Yeah, I haven't I haven't seen too many Chinese movies with that are, um, I guess, directly promoting to Chinese people for, through Hollywood. I do know about that recent film with Matt Damon, who was in. He was like a character in a movie that was largely set in China for Chinese people. And I remember there's a lot of outrage that happened, but then the movie came out and it's sort of interesting because actually Matt Damon and the other white person were actually bad people, you know? And so, and it actually was about making um, the Chinese characters look good. And like, these were like white foreigners who were actually messing things up. Um, but it was sort of interesting how, I mean, it gets complicated, but how the bandwagon sort of jumped in to assume that, that, Matt Damon was sort of this lead and hero, but yeah. I think it, it ends up getting more complicated very quickly. Yeah, I think um, the bandwagon. Yeah, and so let's. I'm going to end it with that and say um, the bandwagon happens because, as we are a global majority, we're probably also globally suffering from PTSD. Mm. <laughs> we have these reactions to it, but uh, I think it's important to call out things. Mm -hmm. It's equally important to call in. Yeah. I, if I were to offend someone or overstep boundaries, I want someone to call me out on it. That but doesn't that, necessarily mean educate me. But to have a dialogue. I want, like, I want someone to, I don't like how you said that. That offends me. I don't need you to get on blast 
on Twitter. And I, I need you to have a one-on-one mm-hmm. human-to-human conversation with me. Right. And I think it's important to give people make mistakes. So how do we allow room for people to grow? Yeah. How can we talk about change when we can cut people off and don't allow them to change? So that's yeah. where I'm just a little different on that. Yeah. I, th- I think you have to call people out, but you have to call them back in. I mean, we are a human family. We can't keep kicking people out of the family. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we can if they act, continue to act crazy. But, yeah. I think it's important to recognize the human family and celebrate it. And with that, thank you. Yeah, that's let's end on a good note. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Christiana. Thank you for having me here. And my, my farting puppy. Yeah. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziyuan Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, www.seeingcolorpod.com, or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoyed this show, please go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and provides greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.